Welcome to the Kenmore Church Podcast. We are all about filling hearts and fueling mission. We hope this content builds your heart and mind and equips you to reveal Jesus in this season of your life. Last week, I really am just trying to follow what I sense God is saying. I, I, I did have a sermon series planned. I, I scrapped that. And um, I just wanted to press in deep and very simply into this whole idea of recalculating your path. And last week, I gave uh, the illustration uh, from Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, that God is like a heavenly GPS. It's an inadequate uh, uh, picture if you like, but it serves its purpose in the sense that no matter how far we get off track or how far our life takes us off track, God is always there to tell us, turn left, he knows how to get us home and uh, and, and what that begins to look like. You know, we we talk a lot about the reality of people turning away from God and we often know people or we've had our seasons where we've turned away from God, but if I can get really right to the point in what a lot of us at some point in our life are going to say, I didn't turn away from God. I think God turned away from me. And you may know what that feeling is like when you butt your nose up against trouble and trial and disappointment and disillusionment where life is derailed and you've been the one who's lived good for God. You've been obedient, you've been faithful and you still smack your nose against the same wall that the rest of people seem to hit and, uh, and you wonder what is this about? God, did you forget me? Did I turn left and you turned right? How does this all begin to work? And uh, so I just want to go there because every believer hits these walls. Every believer finds himself tempted to go down the vortex of the crisis of belief where we, what happened to this God I gave my life to? I served according to a certain contract. This page three, I didn't read the fine print there that says I'm still going to go through trials. What do I do now? And so um, it can feel like he's literally turned from us. There's loss of employment, there's death in the family, there's sickness that we go through, trouble, anxiety, depression, and our heart and mind starts to feel uh, alone, rejected by God, often by his people, confused and negative. And it becomes a real toxin through our emotions. And it's very hard. Sometimes we just wait it out and then a year or two down the track we sort of come back but we try to come back to the faith we had, but we know I can't rely on this God like I used to because the way I used to rely on God, that's not going to work for me because where was he when I needed him? Now, am I alone? Is this, am I the only one who's had these thoughts echo through my head? Um, maybe I should do a, a show of hands, but maybe I won't. But I'm sure as human beings who breathe the same oxygen as me, you know what it means to feel disappointed by God. Let down that he hasn't done. There's been, you've got unanswered questions. You've had unblessed intentions. There's justice in your life that's yet to be served. And we make massive life decisions in those valleys of the shadow that determine many more years of our life, often based on the toxins of the emotion, the disillusionment, the misunderstandings about God and his ways, and we find ourselves even further down a track. So what I want to do is just, just talk straight into that and use the story of Elijah, uh, the prophet Elijah from 1 Kings chapter 19. And you may want to uh, bookmark that in your app or your, or your Bible. I don't see many Bibles coming to church. Is everyone app-based now? Great. The Stephans have got Bibles. Are they New King James? The only true version, I'm told. I've got 87 versions on my phone, so... Uh, 
Top that, Betty. All right. <laughs> I'm baiting her. I'm just waiting for If you know Betty, normally she's all sugar and spice. I'll cop it later on. So um, <laughs> I won't. She's too, she's too good to me on Sundays. All right. The context of 1 Kings 19 is a man who's served God with everything. He's put his life on the line. He's gone through uh, a severe waiting time, a wilderness time with God. He's been prepared by God. He's spoken up for God. He's called down fire. If you know the story of 1 Kings 17 and 18, he's, he's called Israel to account. He's pointed his bony finger to the king and told him where to go. He's sorted the whole place out. But here he is. After all that, and he's done God's work for him, he's run many miles through the power of the Holy Spirit when rain began to come. And he is obviously the guy. And I'm sure in Elijah's mind, he had it set in his mind, I am the guy. I'm God's man here. He even says it. Everyone else, you know, they've got their path, and I thought I was this one character. But he finds himself once Jezebel, the king's wife, finds out what's happened. She puts a contract out on him, gets the mafia in touch and, and just says, guys, we've got to take this prophet out. Now, he's already faced bigger and badder than Jezebel. He's been on the mountain with all the hundreds of prophets of Baal. But something has happened, just the threat of violence, the threat upon his life to this man who's put his whole life on the line for God before. So he knows, he knows what it means to be in those situations. Now just the rumour, now just the threat is enough to make him run and he hightails it out of uh, Carmel and out of um, Beersheba where he was. He runs as fast as he can, takes his servant, his servant runs out of steam, leaves him behind and he keeps going. Something's happened in this guy and it's the same thing that happens to us. Often when we're on a high and a high or we've, we've pushed through and we've exerted ourselves in life or we've gone a certain way, then we find ourselves for one reason or another uh, dipping out, our emotions plateau out, our faith fails us. Um, often, just straight after the highest of highs, you'll find yourself in the lowest of lows because you've come off adrenaline and, and now you're pumping all sorts of other chemicals through your body and you just go through the trough. And right in the middle of that trough, he's got the threat from Jezebel. So he just responds, fight, flight or freeze. He's flight. He's gone. So 1 Kings 19, we pick the story up. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. So he's heading south, essentially. If you know the territory there, it's desert, nothing else. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. Many of you here have prayed that prayer. It's just too hard. I don't understand. Take me home. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And that, that final statement is the hint. He thought he was better than his ancestors. But he's saying, I'm no better than my ancestors. I thought I was better than them. I thought I'd done this, but look at me now. I'm running away. I'm depressed, um, probably suicidal. And he's just grappling with his stuff. He just says, I'm just dust like everyone else. Just take me out. And this weakness that he sees in himself is a, is a reality check. He realised that his mouth has written... Checks that his character can't cash. And while he was once bolstered, in, you know, he was triumphalist, he was even arrogant. Now he's broken in disillusionment and he hates this life, he hates what he's become and he doesn't know what to do with it. And there are points on the map of our life that are like this and they often catalyse this same crisis of belief. 
And like any vessel that's under pressure, it soon finds out the holes that are in there, the holes in our theology, the holes in the way we view God. This doesn't fit. I thought you were there for me. I read the Old Testament verses where if I do that, God blesses like this. This hasn't happened, apparently. So does, does the Bible not count anymore? Does any of this matter? You'll find all this stuff starts to come up in your life. And just as your nose has hit that wall, you're, you're hemorrhaging hope. You're hemorrhaging uh, your disillusionment and disappointment and doubt. It destroys your peace and chaos just reigns inside. It's a bad day. Uh, it's called the dark night of the soul. And so many of us have to endure that as a normal part of life. But Jesus offered a way to separate the state of our outer world and the state of our inner world. I've used this verse a number of times, John 16. In me you have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. He's saying this thing that surprised you, I, I got it too. This is Jesus. He went through trouble. He went through nothing but trouble. And it's coming your way. I don't like it. I haven't designed it. I would rather you don't go through it, but it's coming because his role when he came as Messiah was not to fix the planet just yet. It's coming. Justice is coming. He says, it's coming and it's coming soon, but will I find faith there? Have you got faith through that dark night of the soul to get you through? Because he's given us a way that no matter what's happened on the outside, we can, over time, with his grace, begin to overcome on the inside. So let's look at a way that he, he, he finds for us to come home. We pick it up in verse 5 of 1 Kings 19. So Elijah, he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals, nothing better than that, and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. He's exhausted. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. There's just so much in those three verses about the nature of God, the nature of man, the logic of blessing. And I just love that there's no judgment from God here. Elijah could not at that point have been further from God's will for his life. He's heading the other way. God didn't tell him to go that way. He's operating purely out of carnal fear. And God meets him right there and ignores his attitude, ignores his bad thinking, and just blesses him. And the theology that we've got to bring from that, we've got to understand this, that you don't assume that your guilt in life, whatever you perceive that to be, can scare God away. He doesn't look at you and withhold because of who you are. But you've also got to assume from that, if that's true, that God's blessing is not a reward either for your good behaviour. You can't say, look at God's blessing on his life. He must have done something right. He, he's doing something wrong. And he's failing. His heart has failed. And God meets him right there. So you can't intrinsically connect God's favour and blessing on your life with your obedience or lack of it. He blesses you because of who he is, not because of who you are. This is a huge idea. There's no transactional theology. You don't earn God's blessing on your life. Our faithfulness makes room for him to bless, but it's not a direct cause and effect thing. So God tells Elijah what he needs to know right then. See, if, if Elijah's gone down a track, if God's way is this way, and God's way for you is this way, but he's reacted out of fear and he's gone this way, but now he's blind, now he can't see, now he doesn't know where he's going. Now he's wandered down a track and he doesn't realise there's a cliff there and there's a cliff there, but he's blind and he can't see it. And so... We all know he's got to get back there. But there is no easy way back to that old life now. 
That life that we left when we detoured off, we can't often, often just backtrack the way we went. We can't restore every relationship. We can't rebuild every circumstance. Two wrongs don't make a right. Now we're blind. Now we're lost. And he wants to get us back there, but he knows. Sometimes to get us over there, he's got to lead us back through this way because the maze, he's going to lead us while we're blind and he's going to get us around and he finds a way, the heavenly compass, to get us back home again. And we've got to trust him in that time when we're blind, when we're lost, that we've got to trust him, that he knows what path to take. And he tells us what we need when we need to know it. He doesn't tell you everything there is to be known. He just tells you what you need to get through the next moment. And what Elijah needed to do was do some business with God to recalibrate his soul, to review the way he sees him. And so he ends up in a place that confronts his very idea of calling. God sends him, or he sends, uh, well, it doesn't actually say, it just says the journey is too much for you, but he ends up, without any mistake, I believe, to a mountain called Horeb. Does everyone remember what Horeb is, the mountain? That's Mount Sinai. It's the same mountain. It's the mountain of flaming fire. It's the mountain where Moses saw a burning bush. It's a place where God begins to deal with man and brings calling back into light. It's a place where the Ten Commandments came down. This is the mountain of God, the place of fiery fire, it says. That's what the word actually means. And he gets there. And if you know the story from Sunday school, Elijah goes into the cave there. It's like, okay, I'm going to do business with God here some way, but I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I just want to go. Does that ever resonate with you? You know there's a word coming and you think, not now. It's like you do with your spouse sometimes when you know you've done something wrong and you know you need to be spoken to, but you go, just not now. I think Elijah's in that spot and he just buries himself in the cleft of that cave and he just sucks his thumb in the corner, puts his cloak over and just goes, God, not now. But God says something really interesting. What are you doing here, Elijah? Very interesting question. What are you doing here? Just like he asks you and me, what are you doing here? How did, how did it come to this? What are you doing here? And how many know that when God asks you a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer? He wants you to explain how it came to this. It's like, Adam, where are you? He knows where Adam is. How did it come to this? Elijah, how did it come to this? And maybe you can identify with Elijah's uh, disillusioned logic, the cynicism that comes out of him. And it starts off, and I'm just going to read it out, but you can pick it up in, um, in 1 Kings 19. He says, I've been very zealous for you, God. Feel the finger come out of this hurt, hurt guy. And that finger's saying, I turned up, where were you? And we do that. We've read 1 Kings 18. We know God turned up. He, God's got nothing to prove here, but we feel like he does because we're feeling bad. So God, out comes the finger. I've been very zealous for you. I'm in the right. This isn't about me, God. It's about everyone else. Deflection. Before the question even gets answered, he's already deflecting it off. It's got to be someone else's fault. How come when I live for you, this happens? When all these others get it easy, their story's turned out okay. Or we think it has. We don't, we don't know, but it certainly looks a lot better than ours, doesn't it? And we go, I hate it because they're always smiling through life. And I've been faithful, but it's turned pear shape on me. What happened to your blessing the faithful? And when we say these things, we, we lose, we've lost perspective. We forget the martyrs. We forget all the apostles. We forget those who, 
gave their hearts for Jesus and, and after they'd met him and were skinned alive and dragged through the streets of Cairo or burnt in, a, in a, an iron bowl or had to listen to their kids be tortured rather than uh, uh, proclaim Jesus as Lord. The suffering that they went through for Jesus. And we look at what we go through and it is hard. It's hard. But it's always been hard. Whether you follow Jesus or not, life's always been hard. But his blessing that he gives us, and he does bless, his blessings are eternal. They're, they're sometimes visible, but they're always invisible as well. There's this thing that he does in our heart that lasts for eternity. I've been very zealous for you, God. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, he said. In other words, my whole nation, I was the only one. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets. Yeah, I thought we had this conversation a chapter ago, Elijah. I was there, remember, fire, stones, water, prophets dead. But pain always looks for comfort. Nature abhors a vacuum. And so when there's pain, we find anything to fill that place. So he's looking for blame. He's blaming everyone else because blame is cheap. And it's an easy way to avoid looking at ourselves. The only problem here is Elijah's attitude got wrong in his darkest moment. He was tired, he was worn down, and he's reacted bad. He says, I'm the only one left. Toxic thinking makes a hero of me and a villain of everyone else. If you're a proud person, you say, I can't stand the pain of being just like the rest. That's what's echoing in his head. I must be unique from them. If your heart's one that's always rejected, we just say, absolutely no one cares. No one's ever been here for me. It's, it's not about me, it's about them. And it makes a hero of me and a villain of everyone else. And he keeps going. Now they're trying to kill me. Finally, some truth. Yeah, they are trying to kill you. They always have been, Elijah. Get over it. But I just love the way God doesn't engage in the argument. Have you ever tried to argue with God and you hear nothing back? It's because he doesn't agree with you. And he doesn't enter into any conversation where he's out of agreement. Because I just don't believe, I don't like your logic. It's fundamentally flawed. So I'm not going to come in that, at that level with you. I'm going to come at the level that I come at you. But for Elijah, God had not performed how he'd wanted. God had not lived up to his expectations. He was used to fire. He was used to power. He was used to having no opposition. And now he's copying it. And God had to show Elijah that there was more to faith than God being a God of plug-and-play miracles. You don't just put the USB in and it fixes everything. He had to take his place among the heroes. And God loves Elijah. He's one of the most esteemed prophets and people in the Old Testament. When Jesus goes to the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses, Elijah. How many times is Elijah referenced throughout Old and New Testament? He's an esteemed guy, but God's got to get in his face and say, hey, your thinking's wrong, man. Come on. And this isn't the end of Elijah's ministry or his life. I've heard some sermons that say that. Oh, he's blown it. God's judged him. He's out. I just don't see that in Scripture at all. I see this restoration process where God just takes him and moves him and moulds him and gets him back on track. But he had to take him down the path of Moses who had to learn how to follow God through 40 years in the wilderness. Through Joseph who had to learn how to trust God. Abraham who had to walk by faith and not by sight. And God's point is always the same point. He's always doing the same thing. He wants you and I to listen, to partner with him, to follow his voice, not rely on the miracles all the time. Miracles are great, but they're not everything all the time. So 1 Kings 19 verse 11, we pick it up. The Lord said to Elijah while he's tucked in the, in the cave there, Go out 
and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. This is echoes of Moses here. Remember Moses said, I want to see you and he said, hide yourself in the rock, I'm about to pass by. For the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? See, there still hasn't been a satisfactory answer. So this is a guy, he's, Elijah's used to fire. He's used to wind. He's just seen it all. When he gets taken up to heaven, he gets taken up with fire and wind. God had told him to go out and watch. He didn't go out. The fire's there. Elijah's not out there. He's still stuck under his blanket in the corner. But when he hears this whisper, this is new. This is different. And the whisper is God's inside voice. And I'd much rather hear God's inside voice than his outside voice. It's normally much better news. What are you doing here, Elijah? Come on, man. We can work this through. And Elijah ended up telling him the same story again. And again, God didn't engage. Not at that level. He came at a whole other level. See, the journey of restored life, our life turning around, getting back on track when we're blind like that, it begins with restored thinking. It normally starts with a change of mind. God's empathy, God's compassion on us knows no limits. But he'll call us to account and say, yeah, that way you're looking at me, that way you're looking at life, I understand, I'm with you, but it's inadequate for you. And for the rest of your life, you're going to need to have an upgrade of your thinking if you're going to have an upgrade in what I've got for you to do. See, power and miracles, I love it, I do. It's a great introduction to God, but it's a lousy relationship because God is not an idol. And if we put a plug-and-play God in there and, and expect that whatever we do gets a certain response, then we're relating to what we've made God an idol. There's no relationship there. That's what idols are all about. It's like, you provide for me because I've done something for you. But he, he wants a relationship, so he's calling Elijah here through a whisper, saying, come in, lean in. It's me you need, not a bigger miracle. You've gone off track because you're not listening to me. And he wants to upgrade his ministry through listening. Because the answer to every issue is not a miracle. The answer to every issue is a closer walk with God and hearing him closer. So God wants to meet you in a crisis of belief. Sometimes with logic, not always. But it's always with himself. It's in those darkest nights of the soul where you get to meet him in a way that you could never meet him before. And when you ask the hardest questions, he'll answer from a relational place. Things like, where were you, God? What about all this time that I've now lost? What about my life? I've just cashed it in based on all this stuff and it's just gone wrong. And he just comes back and said, I was with you the whole time. I was with you then, just like I'm going to be with you for the rest of your life. I've never been away from you. What is heaven to you? Is it good circumstance? Or is heaven the fact that I'm with you? Not one second of your life is wasted because you've done it with him. Every breath he's given you, he's been with you on every step. He's cried with you, he's been angry at what's been done wrong, but he's there. And the presence of evil is not the absence of God. Jesus dwelt on earth, he walked with evil, he's in your heart, you've got a bit still there. He's happy to dwell with you too and he likes it there. He's not intimidated by evil. 
And the presence of evil is not the absence of God. But it brings up boiling questions in us. Then, then who's in charge here, God? If that's all true, and I'm happy to take that, then what is sovereignty? What is control? What do you get involved in? What don't you get involved in? And this can be the hardest thing for us because we think if, if God is there, then it's all turned right, isn't it? Surely if he's around, it all gets fixed. Well, apparently not. It didn't work out that way for Jesus. Psalm 115 explains a bit of it. Verse 16 says, The highest heavens belong to God. Up there, third heaven belongs to God. The earth he is given to man. Genesis 1. The earth he was, was given to us. We were co-regents, male and female, representing, representing God on earth. Kingdom of priests, that's the design. That ambassadors, bringing the kingdom, as it is up there, down here. Genesis 1.28, the commission was, we've been given this authority on earth. Make it look here like it is up there. So, so much of that authority was given to us. And as ambassadors, we call the king down. We welcome his presence. Be here anytime. Do whatever you want. And heaven was on earth because God and man dwelt together. And yet the authority for, for earth was given largely to humanity. By the time we get to Luke 4, 6, we see there's been a change. This is the devil talking to Jesus. I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. Je he said this to Jesus, the devil, and Jesus did not argue about it. It's like, that's right. What's the, what's the conclusion? Who's ruling earth right now? Satan is because we gave him the authority. We handed it over in Genesis 3. So we can still, Jesus said, I give you authority. So he ushers in a new age and he says, I'm giving you authority back. So those who have faith in Jesus, we again have authority in a very distinct context where largely, globally, the evil one still roars like a roaring lion, seeing who he can devour, and yet you and I have authority over him. And we can exercise it. But globally, largely, the world has been given to man They've given authority to Satan. And so the fight that we're fighting is pushing that back. This is a serious deal that we're involved in. Jesus says, I've given you authority. Get to work. Get about it. It's not going to change the whole world until I come back. But there's a fight I want you to fight. I want you to show the world what it can look like, how far you can advance the kingdom by inviting me in and ushering me in into this space. So you've been given influence in your workplace, in your family, the whole thing. So you do have authority. And yet, you're pushing back against a tide that is relentless and strong, and the devil fights hard, the world is still broken, and bad things happen to good people. So that means that a lot happens. A lot happens. You've got to get this. That is not God's perfect will. Now, I've got a whole message I can do, and maybe I'll do it sooner than I, than I would want to, on God's sovereign will, God's revealed will, God's perfect will, God's moral will. They're all there. God's permissive will. Five of them. We all translate it as being God's will. God is sovereign. He knows the first page. He knows the last page. But under that sovereignty, there's God's permissive will that allows you and I to make decisions. See, there's not everything that you do in your life is God's will, is it? You think stupid things. You do stupid things. Is that God's will? No, but you do it. You see, so is God sovereign or is God not sovereign? The answer is yes. God is still absolutely sovereign. God can and does do whatever he wants to, but under the umbrella of that, he's given us free will and free choice. And so things are always going to go wrong while any human being exists on earth that's got a choice. And the world's still broken. 
So we've got to grapple with this tension that is this age that won't last forever, but it's the life that we have. And through our difficult journey, as we're going through circumstances, we say, well, was it God's will that I went down that path that led to so much pain? So much of it we don't know. We know at any point on that journey, his call to repent is there. His call to give life is there. And if we're in a difficult situation with relationships that are turning south and we're praying, we're wondering why it's not going on, this person still has to make their choices. And God's will is that they come to faith. God's will is that they choose well. And so we keep going down that path, but at some point it just gets too broken and we've got to disengage. And we go, what's God's will now? God's will is to bring you home. He'll bring you home one way or the other. Did he, did he mean for evil? No. Does God design evil? No. Will he use it? Absolutely. Will he redeem you from it? Absolutely. Does he think any differently of you? No. He just wants to bring you home. And so that's the life we live in. But this mess of life screams at us, God isn't here. But his whisper, if we can hear it, reminds us that he never left. And one of the most grounding and healing experiences you can have in your life is God sovereignly showing you where he was in that trauma that you've been through in that disillusioned time. He was right there with Elijah the whole way, just like he was right there with you. When you know God's always with you, your faith gets built on God's ways as opposed to God's works. Both are good, but it's an invitation to have faith in who God is and God's ways. His ultimate agenda for our life isn't comfort or overt power. It's faith-based relationship. Psalm 103 makes it clear. God has made known his ways to Moses his works to the people of Israel. And when we're in those moments where we're disillusioned, he's, it's an invitation, when we at least have the energy to do it, it seems, to understand his ways. Because if I just trust in his works, I'm going to say things like, how could you let me down like that? What about all the lost time and couldn't you have guided me sooner? Will you repay them for what's happened? Understandable statements, but they're coming from a place of disappointment, disillusionment. But even if they don't get answered, and quite often they don't, we still need to move on home. And so we go past this demand for God's works to understanding his ways. And something, for me, I call it the Christian's finest hour. I always have, I think I always will. When no matter what's happened, we can say, my life is in your hands. Give me daily bread, the peace to go on. Help me to see with your perspective, lead me in the ways of everlasting. Take this shattered remnant of my life where I don't know what I've got anymore, I don't know who I am anymore, and just use it for your glory. I don't ask for fame, I don't ask for riches, I don't ask for worldly things. All I want is you, Lord. All I want is you. For me, that's the moment where heaven rejoices and trumpets sound and trophies of grace with your name on it are held up going, look at that. They overcame. They trusted and so when your life turns to dust, your anchor is trust. So I wonder whether you've been in a spiritual cave too. Maybe it's been in the past and you've been able to avoid going back there. Maybe you've even said, I'm, not, I'm choosing not to believe in God because I can't explain all this stuff that goes on in the world. And I've been in Africa, I've seen the misery there, I've seen third world, and you look at that and go, that must equal no God. But God, the kingdom of God is in our hearts. The kingdom of God, it comes through faith. And he's there. 
He's real. He's present. How do you grapple with that? Let's close in prayer as the band comes up. Father, this is the rub. Lord, we want you to be plug and play. The relationship bit's hard because, Lord, to be really honest, we can't see you. Most of the time we can't hear you. And yet we hear that whisper that says, blessed are those who don't see but still believe. So, Lord, I really pray right now your gentle whisper would just come to those who are in the cave, done. That they would see, Lord, your comfort right now. That they would feel your heart, that you're crying as many tears as they are. And they just want to come home. And the Lord doesn't speak judgment in that moment, but he will speak clarity. That you can do it. You've got this. It's going to be okay. As heaven defines okay. You're going to make it. God is enough. You can do this. And maybe you're someone who's been through that cave, but you walked out and you just wanted to get back on with life and not go back there again, preferably not remember. Why don't you just picture right now, where was Jesus when you were in your cave? Was he there with you? Because if you've walked out of the cave and you haven't dealt with this, that cave's going to uh, guide your life. It's going to guide your courage. It's going to guide your faith. It's going to guide your decisions about what you're prepared to do and not do, trust or not trust. We've got to know, deep in our soul, that no matter how it goes, whatever storm and waves we go through, it's well with my soul because he's with me and he's enough. And if you've put off placing your faith in Christ, because you couldn't reconcile the state of the world with the presence of a perfect God, then maybe it's time to put your swords down and surrender and admit that you're possibly not the, the resource of all wisdom. There's possibly logic you don't have and possibly things bigger than you at stake. And yet God of the universe, who's designed it all, built it all, invites you and wants to know you. Will you come to him? Place your faith in him and just say, I believe. Father, I just pray right now in this space, Lord, you'd give us the gift of faith that we would believe and we don't need anything else. Amen. Amen. Bless you, everyone. And if you'd like prayer, um, uh, there'll be some prayer ministers down the front. We'd love to pray with you after the service. If you'd like to work that through, let's worship God. I invite you to stand with us.